Hi, I'm Brian Mandel, the editor-in-chief of the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine, CCJM. Welcome to Beyond the Pages, CCJM podcast, where we will take you in-depth into the content of selected articles from the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine and explore a few interesting tangents along the way. Through moderated interviews with our authors and other experts in the field, we hope the clinicians will gain a more nuanced perspective of clinical concepts that are changing the practice of medicine and be able to apply this perspective to the care of our patients. So on today's episode, I'm joined by Stephen Gordon, MD, Chairman of Cleveland Clinic's Department of Infectious Disease, Professor at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine of Case Western Reserve University. And I think most appropriately to, to note for today's discussion, he's really incredibly active on the inpatient infectious disease endocarditis and endovascular consult service. And I've asked Steve to discuss with me infectious endocarditis and the article he co-wrote with the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine, getting to the root of the problem, should my patient receive antibiotics to prevent infective endocarditis before dental procedures? The co-authors of this paper were Cindy McCartney and Thomas Crilly, also of the uh, Department of Infectious Disease. Steve, welcome. Well, thanks, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. So thanks for being here, and now let's go beyond the pages. So you grew up as, uh, as I grew up medically in a mixed academic and urban hospital setting, and it seemed that the overwhelming number of patients with infectious endocarditis at that time were IV drug users. Yet the history of endocarditis goes way back, and you look back to Osler's Gastonian lectures in the late 1800s, the patients were different, and they seemed to have evolved over, over time. So, Steve, what's the current demography of infectious endocarditis in terms of bugs and patients? Well, well, thanks, Brian, for that question. You know, I'll go back. You mentioned Osler. Uh, Osler was the first person actually to identify a vegetation and identify bacteria, although he couldn't grow it. But Osler's term was malignant and uh, malignant endocarditis. And the reason why it was malignant is because it resulted in death in most of the cases. There was no treatment. There were no antimicrobials. If you fast forward a little bit, I think the next era in infective endocarditis was actually um, a, a former mentor of ours, Phil Lerner, who was at Mount Sinai. But when he was at a fellow with Lou Weinstein at the Tusk Medical Center, they published a seminal article, uh, a seminal, it was probably a 100-page article in New England Journal of Medicine called Infective Endocarditis. And what Phil determined then is, is that not all endocarditis was bacterial, although most were. This was in the mid-60s, so we began to see evolving things such as cardiac surgery. Uh, and then finally, I think we're in the, the Duke or the, the Duke 2.0 era. Now, of course, we're fully in cardiothoracic surgery, but also devices. So to your point, things such as people who inject drugs in this terrible opioid epidemic has certainly affected us. Endocarditis uh, cases have increased significantly uh, because of the proportion of people who inject drugs in the past 15 to 20 years. Although, again, the most thing we fear about in people that inject drugs is overdoses. But we also have a plethora of people who are getting older and are getting more cardiac devices, whether it's mitral valve repairs or replacements. And so there's a whole substrate of people now with, I'd say, I'd say at higher risk for what we call sticky valves. So excluding those patients with direct vascular access route of infection, um, do we know the likely origin of most of the bacteria that actually we identify as causing infectious endocarditis? 
So it's a great question. Um, about, you know, there are about 35,000 cases of incident or new endocarditis in the United States each year, which now equals about the number of new HIV cases in the United States, to put that on parallel in terms of disease burden. The big pathogen is still strep viridans uh, or, or species of strep viridans. We're able to kind of do molecular typing now, so we have all sorts of subspecies. And this is a GI mouth origin. So, um, but for you, for me to tell you precisely where it comes from, uh, in terms of most cases of infective endocarditis where I have a pathogen, the answer to that is absolutely not. Yeah, so that's kind of critical when you think about prophylaxis, whether this is gut translocation versus mucosal oral stuff. Um, it's important to realize the limitations of our understanding. So I think you hit right there in terms of what's always been the soft belly of the guidance for prevention of endocarditis uh, with antimicrobials before uh, dental procedures is yes, you can find the strep in the bug, but is it the dental procedure that is actually associated with the bug getting into the bloodstream? Or as we all know, we all can have periods of transit, uh, what we call bloodstream infection, if we floss or brush or, or other things not associated with dental procedures. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that in a, in a couple of minutes. But you, you, you said sticky valves, which is, you know, a, an interesting biological uh, construct. And so what do we know now about the biology of the attachment of bugs to endovascular structures? There's lots of bacteremias, but not lots of endocarditis. No. And so your point is a good one. So going back to Osler's days and in, in through the antimicrobial era, rheumatic heart disease would have been the most common cause of sticky valves in adults, right? Very prevalent, no treatment. Uh, you as a rheumatologist know all about acute rheumatic fever, but there is some sequelae in terms of especially the mitral valve. And so in Osler's day, the predisposing condition would have been uh, rheumatic heart disease up into, up into the 50s or through the 50s when these guidance was first produced. Now, when I present with a case of potential endocarditis, I think of it in three fashions. I want to know what is the sticky valve situation? So usually there should be something. Is it somebody who has had prior valve surgery? Is it somebody with a history of endocarditis? Um, so I'm looking for that as well as um, is there a pathogen in the bloodstream and is there an opportunity for that to actually replicate and survive? And that's what I call the three hit hypothesis, which is the backbone for the understanding for prophylaxis, but how we think about endocarditis. Some bugs clearly are more prevalent to sticking on sticky valves and some not. We see primarily, as, as we talked about, the strep viridans, Staph aureus. It's mostly a gram-positive field. The gram-negative organisms we talk about classically is the Hasix. Uh, other than that, um, uh, you know, we don't see uh, things like E. coli usually or serratia. That's a little bit more unusual. And then, of course, there's always the panache of, of other things. Um, uh, you know, one of the classic associations, as you know, is you have what used to be called strep bovis associated with colon cancer. Um, you can get gonococcus, uh, you can get some other things, but for the most part, um, it's going to be garden variety strep. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. You talked about, you know, Osler's the malignant endocarditis, which I think kind of morphed into the acute versus subacute for a while. And it's interesting, like the bicuspid valve part of it was recognized very early that this was not rheumatic, and, but it was different and something was causing it to stick. So the, the interplay here, I think, is fascinating between the bug and, and the valve. 
I, I, you know, you make that a great point. That's probably the most common congenital cause of a, you know, of a young person without any known prior sticky valves. And, and there's no reason that they would know that. The other thing we see is, you know, in the dialysis patients, we see aggressive calcifications of the micro of the mitral valve. Uh, and even dystrophic, what we call mitral annular calcifications or things, can be a setup for quote-unquote a sticky valve situation. So you talked about teeth brushing and flossing, and I, I think this is really a key point as we kind of morph our discussion here into, you know, into your paper itself. But how do you reconcile the data showing bacteremia occurring after routine teeth brushing and, and flossing? Figure twice a day, do the arithmetic, and the relatively rare occurrence of invasive dental manipulation. I mean, we have something that's incredibly common. We know we get bugs in the bloodstream. Maybe they last a little bit, you know, less long in the bloodstream, but they're there. Um, how, how do you conceptualize the whole concept of going after prophylaxis for invasive proceedings for procedures, uh, you know, thinking about what goes on every day? So I, I think you've hit on what I would call is, is the pivot point that was made. So as opposed to initially focusing on a event uh, in the 50s for prophylaxis, that is a dental event, you know, when the gingiva is going to be uh, violated either with cleaning, scaling, or an extraction, okay, which is one event, to understand that, wait a minute, if someone's got poor gingiva in poor dental health, that's an ongoing threat with or without dental procedures. And so the guidelines in probably around 1990 really pivoted that way. And that's reflected, Brian, in a couple things. Initially, I think in 55, it was a 10-day course or something of this, pre and post courses. Now, as of you know, 1990, it, it pivoted to almost a single dose of an antibiotic, amoxicillin, 30 minutes or 60 minutes before the procedure, which I think reflects your point is let's focus on oral hygiene as a global risk, not just for endocarditis, but for other things. Um, and that is probably the best primary prevention. Um, now, why people still prophylax or still there's a push? As you know, um, this abundance of caution in medicine, the issue that endocarditis is clearly a high, uh, even though it might be a low incidence, but it's a high, it's a high impact condition. Uh, especially if people have already been operated on. And people up until maybe the last 20 years have thought antibiotics are relatively benign. Um, and then we get the issue about adverse effects to antibiotics, not so much anaphylaxis and death, that's rare, but the microbiome, C. diff, drug interactions. So these have all, I think, swung the pendulum back to much more of a targeted um, shortened period in understanding that even prophylaxis doesn't make you quote unquote protection. Uh, it's not a hundred percent and it's not going to protect you from underlying risk factors with poor oral, oral hygiene. Yeah. So that fits. I mean, the identified dwell time uh, following an event, which was looked at, it really is in, in minutes. It's not in hours and days. So it, this one hit antibiotic, which which for sure is is safer, both for the individual and for society than this protracted, you know, days long prophylaxis. So that fits in with our, our, our philosophy on surgical prophylaxis, right? The goal is to get a therapeutic amount of antibiotic in the bloodstream for pathogens we think are going to cause surgical wounds at the time of the incision, not three days before, not three days after. So our benchmark, as you know, is 30 to 60 minutes before the incision, have an antimicrobic prophylaxis when it's indicated for, for clean surgeries. Yeah, so this is, that's, a, that's a great point, Steve, that this really is in parallel with the surgical prophylaxis and, and the end of this, you know, post-procedure 
prolonged cephalosporin exposure to people. So, so several countries and societies have, have markedly changed their recommendations. And some, uh, Sweden, England, have completely eliminated the suggestion to prophylax. And there are a couple of studies, time studies, of looking at different periods of time before and after these interventions, looking at the, um, the prevalence of endocarditis showing up. And there's really not been a demonstrated marked increase in endocarditis following the elimination of these guidelines in those countries. Um, how do you reflect back on, on those data? So that, those are great points. So many countries do have are smaller and have better healthcare systems in terms of tracking some of this data. So the UK is one, and again, most of the prophylaxis is going to be delivered by the primary care by your PJP or prime, or PCP, so they can track this and then outcomes in the in the national healthcare system. Um, but I think that's in concert with reflecting that the fact that, um, yeah, there might be an individual event that occurs with a dental, but if you have a high risk condition or poor oral hygiene uh, and you have a, a sticky valve situation, that threat is, is going to be continued ongoing. I laugh because, you know, as an ID fellow, we're taught always get that history of when the person went last to the dentist, right? And so. And what pets they have. And what pets they have. And where, where they've they, been. And where they've been in travel. That's part of what we like about that. But, you know, as you've taught us, uh, correlation isn't causation. And, and so there have been many studies that have looked back retrospectively, as you know, at endocarditis and actually getting the time and the date of the event of the, of the visiting the dentist, and there is no higher risk. In fact, I'm more concerned about my dentated patients, that is patients with teeth, who have not been to the dentist, as opposed to those who have been to the dentist. And that raises a bigger problem, I think, and that's dental insurance and dental coverage. Um, and again, if we're talking about oral health globally, right, you really need to get not access, but you also need to get people, um, uh, you know, access to dentistry or, or oral hygiene. You know, I grew up in Detroit. At that point in the union, everyone had dental insurance or a lot of dentists. Uh, fast forward to 2023. I mean, they're trying to, I think, claw back some of that in the contracts. Um, and again, it's about half of Americans by the last census have about private dental insurance. But even amongst those, only uh, there's still 20 percent that haven't seen a dentist in the past year with insurance. So, as you know, insurance doesn't always mean access. Um, so that's a that's a different pivot that I think I really support. And that doesn't even touch on the issue of periodontal disease and rheumatoid arthritis, which I won't push too far on you. So what are your bottom line suggestions to dentists and patients about prophylaxis uh, to prevent endocarditis? So it's a good question. And sometimes the dentists get into a um, in the middle. Uh, the American Heart Association recognized four what I call sticky valve situations where they recommend antibiotic prophylaxis before a dental invasive dental procedure, usually in the gingiva extraction scaling. That is a prior history of infective endocarditis a presence of a cardiac valve or repair. Uh, the other would be unrepaired or recent, unrepaired congenital heart disease or recently repaired within six months. And the other is something called uh, transplant valvulopathy. So transplant patients can sometimes get valvulopathy. Most clinicians are not going to see, um, how could I say, are not going to see the last two at all. And most dentists are not going to be looking for median stenotomy scars or things of this nature. So they really depend on the patients or what the patients are being told. That said, even under this guidance, there are many surveys to show that no one is really adhering greatly to this. Cardiologists probably more than most of our, of our internists, but most people don't, don't know what the guidance is. 
Uh, and so we want our patients to be informed. Uh, I, I think that's important. We, we tell them all our patients with endocarditis or after valve surgery, we, we tell them about the prophylaxis before their dental procedures. Uh, and that's usually not an issue for them. But we also tell them another thing, and that is what we call uh, early detection. So we tell them that if they develop a febrile or fever illness, uh, of unclear etiology, and someone wants to prescribe an antibiotic for that fever, we tell them before they take the, the, the antibiotic. Culture first. Yes, blood cultures. And most physicians, although they don't like being told what to do, if they say, look at, look at doctor, I've had endocarditis. Uh, I'm happy to take your z uh, for this, but can we get blood cultures? Most clinicians will say, hey, that's a good idea. So only slightly tangential to this. How should we be handling the tension between docs who want dentists to give prophylaxis to patients with prosthetic joints uh, and other sundry insertions into their bodies? So that's another great question. And there's been some literature written on that, and it's kind of trying to get to yes. So we understand our orthopedic colleagues. She puts this hip in, uh, you know, she spent a lot of time there. An infection is at one of the devastating complications of any prosthetic device. Uh, same thing, you know, you can talk about stents or, or other types of things our cardiologists do. But if you unroll this, Brian, as you know, it, it can go on forever. And then if their patients are told that, they're going to believe that they need this because my, you know, my great surgeon, you know, told me, she told me I needed this and I want you to give it. The dentist, on the other hand, um, you know, they are, they're under the other side. They know the harm and they know their guide, the guidelines. And so they are caught in the middle. Um, there was one paper written where it's kind of let's get everyone together and talk. But as you know, it's very difficult to get to, to do that. Uh, the fact that it should be stewardship is what they call it, stewardship for, for prophylaxis for, for these things. Because there is, no, there is no evidence to support routine prophylaxis uh, for, for these prosthetic joints. What we've decided here after talking to our dentist and our ortho, orthopedist is, again, this is guidance. I mean, some people say the only laws are like the laws of gravity, everything else. I think that was Elon Musk. I just heard him say that. Everything else is, you know, uh, is negotiable, is that if the surgeon, if she feels that strongly, that she should prescribe the antibiotic, not the dentist. Yeah, don't put the dentist in the middle. Correct. Uh, that the dentist will say, you know, if, you're, if your surgeon really feels that strongly, I'm not, you know, those are things that, that I don't, uh, you know, I don't have the evidence for or things. But if he or she feels that strongly, then if they give you, you know, you come with the antibiotic, I'll give it to you. So the microbiology in joint infections, prosthetic joint infections, is different than endocarditis infections also. Yes, although some of the pathogens, you know, can cross over, but, but you're, you're, you're correct. And it also depends on, on timing from the time of surgery. We generally think that first six months or so is going to be bugs that are on the skin at the time of the insertion um, in that that microbiome can change over time. Yeah. So any, any closing thoughts, Steve? Because, you know, for to me, uh, it is coming from an ID guy. It is a law, not a not a suggestion. Oh. <laughs> well, as you know, we, we have a lot of hubris uh, about these things. But um, but I, I do think that, um, you know, we'd rather prevent an infection than treat it. And we get that we'd rather prevent a cancer than treat it. Um, but I do think now we're mature enough to understand that abundance of caution can also cause harm. And so we want to empower our patients. We want to be evidence-based when possible. And if it's guidelines, we understand that's guidelines, right? But, but your guideline is not going to be imposed on someone else's practice. If you feel that strongly, right, then write the, write the prescription or, or deal with that situation uh, with your patient. 
So thanks, Steve, uh, for your insights and helping us to go beyond the pages of the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine. Well, Brian, thank you. And again, I want to call out um, the fellows who really did the bulk of the work here. Uh, um, and it's just wonderful that we have the opportunity to write for the journal. And thank you for all your effort. Thank you for your insights and in helping us to go beyond the pages of the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine. To read CCJM articles, visit ccjm.org. To participate in other accredited educational activities, visit ccfcme.org. You can subscribe to the podcast on Google Play, Spotify, or however you prefer to access your podcasts. 